Good morning, everybody. Did you see the RV sitting in the yard as you came in? Yeah. Welcome to Livingstone's Church. Uh, hey, thank you to the people who showed up yesterday to risk their lives, literally, putting up Christmas decorations in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, a couple of us actually got on the roof to put decorations on the roof, and so we got to the top and thought, we're stupid. Like, we should get off here now. So uh, there's more work to be done. We're going to wait for the weather to get warmer, but thank you to everybody who showed up yesterday and left uh, freezing cold, uh, but it was a, a great day as we were put up decoration. If you haven't gone by at night, drive by the church sometime and take a look. Uh, the RV looks much better with the Christmas lights on in the dark than it does during the day. And now we are in the third week of our series out of Philippians. Uh, and so if you brought your Bibles or if you want to punch it in your smartphone, I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 3 in just a little bit, and so you can follow along. If you missed any of the weeks, let me encourage you, they're all online. Just go to our website, livingstones.cc. When you get there, there's a message tab you just click on, and then a, it will launch a, a podcast player that you can catch up on all the messages that you might have missed. By way of just review, we started the very first week not only giving an introduction to the Apostle Paul, to the church in Philippi, to kind of the context of what's going on, but we talked about the reality that Paul's got a problem. And the problem that Paul has is, by every account, he looks like a real loser. Like, when you just take a look at his life and his resume, there's nothing that seems overly impressive. Like you just go through a long list of, let's see, you've been shipwrecked this many times, you've been flogged this many times, you've been beaten this many times, and now you're in prison. Like Paul is incarcerated, and that's in fact where he's at when he writes this letter to the Philippians, and by all external circumstances, it looks like when it comes to the game of life, he's losing. And in addition, he's got people who are walking around who are also preachers of the gospel of Jesus, and they're saying bad things about him, and they're putting him down, and they're even trying to convince the Philippians, you know, you really ought not to listen to the Apostle Paul, and they got a list of things as to why he's not uh, equipped or qualified to be the apostle that he claims to be. When you look at all that, it's kind of discouraging, and the church in Philippi is just kind of like, you know, what do, we, you know, what do you do with it? You look like you're losing. And Paul has to write his letter and get them to see, oh, no, listen, you've got the wrong filter. You're looking at things from the wrong perspective. Now, I recognize by the world's values, yes, it looks like I'm losing. But because of the kingdom of God and the perspective that we now have in the kingdom of God, what you need to know is what looks like losing is really winning. And so he's trying to get them to understand there's a new value system, a new perspective that we receive in the kingdom of God. And I know it looks like because I'm in prison, I might be losing, but what you need to know is it's really a win. And the reason why it's a win is because now that I'm in prison, everybody around me knows about the story of Jesus. In fact, other brothers and sisters are actually even more bold in their declaration of the gospel because I'm in prison. And so even though it might look like a loss, God has been able to use it as a win. And I know there are people who are saying negative things about me and they're preaching with selfish motives and, and selfish ambitions. And that on the surface of things looks like a loss, but you know what's getting done? You know what's, what's happening? Jesus is being preached. Whether from good motives or bad motives, in the end, Jesus is being preached. And so that's why it might look like a loss, but in the end, it's really a win. He's trying to get them to have a kingdom perspective. And so we talked about there are probably things in your life that based on the world's definitions of success, it might feel like you're losing in the game of life. And if you were to just take it from the filter of the world, you might have external circumstances that lead you to discouragement or depression. What I would challenge you to is, yeah, you're, don't look at those lenses. Put the lenses on in the kingdom of God, and in it you might be able to see what might appear to be a loss is actually a win. That you might be able to say, had this not happened in my life, God would have never then been able to use me in this particular way. Or had this thing not taken place in my life, I would have never had this open door or this opportunity to be a blessing to this person because of it. So 
look at it from the, key, uh, the perspective of the kingdom of God. Now, last week in chapter 2, we talked about the reality that some people weren't getting along in the church, which I know is shocking, uh, but even 2,000 years ago, sometimes there was conflict. Sometimes people didn't get along. And so Paul has to write to remind them, let me encourage you to kind of make this right with one another, to be in right relationship with one another. And so he'll say, let your relationships with one another be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Like, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. And so he'll write and he'll say things like that he was God. And even though, by way of status, being God, he didn't even think that was something to be taken advantage of. Like, he had the position of privilege, but he gave that up, or even more importantly, he leveraged that to be a servant to everybody, and not just any servant, one who in humility would actually move towards the cross and die for the sake of other people. And that's why Paul will say, listen, you have to think of other people more highly than you do of yourself. You have to live a life of servanthood and humility. And so he casts this vision of this is how you guys are going to get along and how you should relate to one another. Jesus is, in fact, our template. But this morning, as we dive into chapter 3, I want to begin by asking you this question. Just kind of think about it for just a moment. Let it kind of ponder in your minds. But let me ask you, what did you give up when you received Jesus? Like when you think about your life, what did you give up? What cost or price did you pay to receive life in Jesus? And by that, what I'm asking is, what changed in your life? Like, what was the old you like? What were, like before you met Jesus, what were your assumptions back then or your values or your thought processes? Like maybe it was the way you talked. Like, yeah, before I met Jesus, like I talked like this all the time. And I don't mean just like just cussing. I mean like just negatively and depressed and discouraged. And like, I mean, this is my, the pattern of my behavior. Or maybe it was in particular behaviors that you engaged in. Because Paul seems to indicate that in his mind, there is a old you, a pre-Jesus you. But what happens in the waters of baptism is you experience a new creation. You are born again, and you become a new you, a post-Jesus you. And if you were to take a look at your old self and the new self, there probably is a stark contrast. And I'm going to guess for many of you, when I ask the question, what did you pay? What did it cost you to receive Jesus? You might be able to respond that, oh, no, the difference is stark. Like, I remember what my life was like before I gave it to Jesus and committed myself to living out his teachings and values. And so what happens is you've got just memories of just a road full of pain and difficulty that really does uh, look like what Paul says is a life of sin that leads to death. Or maybe you can remember the consequence of, yeah, man, when I used to live just for myself, like my whole world revolved around me, when I was sort of the idol of my life, and you could just, you remember the pain and destruction of relations, like maybe ruined marriages, or maybe strained relationships with your kids, or maybe you just got a list of friendships that used to be important in your life, and, and now just oh, they all fell apart just one by one. And you look back and you wonder, I wonder what it had been like had I given my life to Jesus earlier. Like, what would my marriage have been like had I given my life to Christ at this point rather than at that point? Others of you might recall addictions or incarcerations or life choices that, even if it just kind of stemmed from you're just trying to survive, but they just planted seeds of destruction all around. Or maybe it was just a sense of purposelessness or meaninglessness. You're just kind of lost in a sea of apathy or pointlessness. But what I say, sometimes even people in your life could talk about those stark differences. Like it might be your spouse. Like some of you might have a, your wife might be able to say, oh, let me tell you about what my husband was like before he gave his life to Jesus. And man, he was angry and angry all the time. And out of that, he drank all the time. And when his anger and his drinking came together, it meant this for me and for our kids 
But then when he surrendered his life to Jesus, it changed everything. He's not an angry man anymore, doesn't drink like that anymore. Like he's not laid a hand on me or the kids ever since that moment he decided to surrender himself to Jesus. Some of you, your kids might be able to talk about the you before you met Jesus and the you after Jesus. But my question is, what did you give up when you received Christ? Now, my guess is for many others of you in the room, this question is a little bit more challenging because you grew up in a Christian home. In fact, you don't really, you can't recall much in your life or a day that you didn't know Jesus or at least loved Jesus in some particular way. And so sometimes that contrast between the old you, the pre-Jesus you, and the post-Jesus you isn't nearly that stark. And so this question can be a challenge. But I would still say, even for those of us who grew and I'm in this category, those of us who grew up in a Christian home and feel like I've kind of always known Jesus, but you can also tell stories about, yeah, but when I grew into my faith and it matured and like I owned it for myself, I recognized it meant that I had to choose these values and make these life choices as a direct uh, result of my faith in Christ Jesus. And so we probably have our stories. Like I had my story, of, like my life uh, was headed towards, um, I wanted to be a lawyer. Like since the fifth grade at Monroe School, I had planned on being a lawyer and then I'd be the president of the United States at some point. Like really, that was my, my dream since the fifth grade. I went to college as a pre-law major and a public administration major. My intent was I'm going to graduate from here, go into the Marine Corps. I'll be a legal officer. I'll get out and have a practice in law, and I'll eventually run for office, and I'll eventually be the president of the United States. But God, eight years later, rescued our nation from me. <clears throat> it was that moment where uh, I received a call into ministry as I began to, no, I'm going to own this faith of Christ Jesus. Like, they're true or not true. If it's true, I need to take this seriously. And then you begin to re reflect on your whole life choices. And I'm like, well, why do you want to be a lawyer? And some people get in law because they, you know, and I think I could have been a great lawyer. Like, I, I could have been really good. Like, uh, I'm blessed here. I'm not complaining at all, but I think I could have made a lot of money in law. But what happens is you have to ask yourself, like, well, why do you want to do this? And I couldn't think of, like, for justice or some sort of using the system to help people who are underprivileged. Like, mine was, I think I saw too many episodes of LA Law and just like to argue and thought, I should just do this for a living, right? And so, no, God gets a hold of you. He says, no, we're going we're gonna to have a whole new trajectory of life. And, and so some of those become your stories. For others of you, it might be you had to say goodbye to a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend that really did mean something to you because you recognize you can't build a life on two radically opposing foundations. Or maybe it was a career choice for you, or maybe it was a stand that you took in a particular friendship group that proved costly to you. And maybe you were labeled at school, maybe left out, it costs you socially because you determine, because I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I can't be like that, and I won't treat people like that. What did it cost you when you determined to live after Christ? And for others of you who might struggle at this moment to have anything come to mind, like, I don't know, allow me to suggest, humbly if I might, maybe you haven't given up anything to follow Christ. Maybe the old you is the same as the new you. Maybe the you before Jesus looks exactly like the you after Jesus. If the only thing you can think of that really has changed your life because of Jesus is, well, from time to time I wake up on a Sunday and I get ready and I spend an hour and ten minutes at church, or maybe I have some therapeutic sense of peace in my life, what I would suggest cautiously is maybe you have fundamentally missed what it means to follow after Jesus. Maybe you misunderstood the nature of discipleship and what it means to, in Jesus' words, die to oneself to follow after him 
means that because I'm a follower after Jesus, all those other working narratives in my life and stories in my life, I'm not saying they don't count. It just means they get subjected to Jesus' story and Jesus' narrative. It means that I'm adopting His values and His worldview. What repentance truly means is that those things that are in my heart and my life that don't look like His, I turn away from. And when I look at Jesus' life, where does it lead him? Where does, what's the end story of Jesus' life? Where does, it, where does he head? To radical suffering love on a cross. And this is just what Paul had reminded us in Philippians chapter 2. Let your mindset be the same as Christ Jesus, who even though he was equal to God, did not take advantage of that and humbled himself, becoming a servant and even pursuing death on a cross. And I wonder if that radical suffering love might be relevant to anything that's gone on in the news even this past week. What I recognize is it's kind of easy to live here in America and be a Christian. Like a good portion of America thinks they're Christian by virtue of the fact that they are American, which is absurd, but there you have it. The chances of you being truly persecuted for being a Christian in America is not very great. And and just by way of reminder, if Target says to you, Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas, that does not qualify as persecution. In fact, it's quite possible that you lived your life exactly as you always did, and you just added a little Jesus to it. You keep everything the same and just sprinkle a little Jesus magic dust in our life for good measure. Like, we didn't die to anything or give up our old life. It didn't cost us anything. We just added Jesus to the mix of what has always been in our life and got a cool Livingstone's Church t-shirt as a bonus. Oh, right? I mean, and I think sometimes, I think theologically, maybe we've even contributed to that mindset. Like, I look back at some of the things I've said and preached and thought, I wonder if I've kind of contributed even to that thinking that accepting Jesus doesn't really change a whole lot. That maybe I've aided and abetted to this problem of receiving Jesus and there not being a cost to it, of accepting Jesus but not denying ourselves and picking up our cross, becoming a new creation, putting to death the old self and living a born-again life under the lordship and command of Jesus. And let me know how it kind of happens. Like, um, for some of you, in terms of your religious traditions, you might have been told, like, when you want to get saved, like, this is what you do. Like, you say the sinner's prayer. Have you ever heard the sinner's prayer? Like, if you want to accept Jesus, bow your head and say this prayer, and then somebody leads you into your confession that you're a sinner and you're in need of a Savior, in Jesus' name, amen, and then you're saved, oh! right? Um, Now, I'm not speaking against that, and if that's been your experience, I understand that, but I would like just to suggest that I'm not sure Jesus is interested in being invited into your heart. Like, at least in the Scriptures, you don't ever see that. Like, nobody in the Gospels or in the book of Acts goes, oh, you want Jesus? Bow your head, we're going to say this prayer, because I'm not sure that Jesus is interested in, like, living in your heart. I think He's interested in taking the entire heart that was, ripping it out, and giving you a brand new one, and that's a totally different thing. And sometimes we kind of have this idea of like, I'm just going to invite Jesus to be a part of my life and my life is full of different compartments and rooms and I got my living room life and I got the kitchen life and I got this bedroom life and I got this spare room life. And, and so the invitation is for Jesus to come and live in my house. Here, Jesus, I built you a guest room, right? And I think Jesus is like, yeah, I'm really not interested in that. Like, I'm not interested in just being like one room in the house that is you. I'm interested in taking up the inhabitancy of your entire house and you now living in me. And those are radically different thoughts. It didn't cost us anything to accept Jesus, and I'm living my life exactly the same way as I did before I accepted Jesus, except now I feel better about my chances of getting to heaven when I die. And I wonder if part of the problem 
is even our use of the metaphor gift, like the gift of salvation. And listen, I'm not sure this is even right. I just kind of percolating on this this week, but just let me hear me out in terms of my arguments and see if this makes sense to you. Um, we use that language a lot. It's a gift. It's a gift from God, salvation to you. And I do know that Paul will use the concept of grace and gift kind of go together and spiritual gifts go together. And Acts will talk about the Holy Spirit is a gift. And by that, if we mean, yeah, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it, like you haven't credited yourself to it, then I'm cool with that. I think that makes sense in regards to being a gift. But if you actually read like the, the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, he never uses the language of gift. Like when he calls his disciples to come follow him, he never uses the metaphor of it's a gift. Because when you give me a gift, here's what happens. I get to receive it and add it to all the other gifts in my life. That's what a gift is. And so if I brought you a gift and gave it to you all wrapped with a bow on top, it's yours. It's from me to you, a gift. Just receive it, open it, and just add it to the collection of things that you already have. But imagine if I handed you a present and you opened it and then I said, do you like it? And you said, yes, it's great. Then I say, all right, well, if you want to keep it, I need you to now go get all of your electronic devices and give them to me. To which you'd respond, huh? Then that's not a gift. Like, it's not a gift if in order for me to keep this thing, I've got to give to you all of my electronic devices. That means not gift, but rather it costs me something. And I just want to say, God's grace is a gift in the sense that you can't earn it, but it's not a gift in the sense that it won't cost you something. Jesus never uses the language of gift. He uses the language of the great exchange. The idea is more of, no, this will be a great exchange in your life. He'll tell a story like this. It's in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then what did he do? In his joy, he went and he sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. See, the man didn't find the treasure and just add it to what he had already had in his possession. He liquidated everything that he had, so he had the capital to get that field and that particular treasure. He gave up everything. He didn't just find a pearl and place it in his pearl collection. He put on eBay everything that he owned so that he had money to go buy that pearl. Now, it doesn't say eBay. I'm kind of paraphrasing, but you get what I'm saying, right? And it isn't a gift. It's a great exchange. What you receive versus what you give up can't even be compared. One of my favorite illustrations of this, I even used this, I think, a year, year and a half ago. Uh, Los Whitaker is his name, and he tells a story about he was going to surprise his kids and take them to Disney World. But to set it up, he first began by telling them that they're going to go to a bouncy house for a day to play. And so the thing would be, they'd all think that they're going to a bouncy house. Then, surprise, we're really at Disney World. But what happened is his youngest son, Losiah is his name, for whatever reason in his youth and immaturity, he's never been to Disney World, he had his heart set on a bouncy house. And that's where he wanted to go, was a bouncy house. And so when they finally announced, we're just kidding, we're not going to a bouncy house, we're really taking you to Disney World, his son was devastated, like just completely devastated because he had his heart set on a bouncy house. And so he began to flip out and throw a tantrum, and they didn't really know what to do. Like, you just kind of, no, listen, kid, you know what you're doing. We're going to Disney World. And so one of the grandmothers said, 
you know what, you know, if you want, I'll take Lysiah to a bouncy house while the rest of you go spend the day at Disney World, and that's exactly what they did. So the picture you're seeing here is uh, half of the family is enjoying Disney World, the other half is Lysiah, he's at uh, a bouncy house. And sometimes I think that's exactly what happens in our own life. Like, God wants to give us Disney World, but our heart is set on a bouncy house. It's like, no, like, no, God, I, I like, like, no, you don't understand. I want to give you Disney World, but you won't let go of the bouncy house. It's the great exchange. And in it, this is, I think, in fact, what Jesus is talking about. So the Christian life ultimately costs us, in Jesus' words, everything. So let me go back to my original question. What did it cost you to become a follower of Jesus? What price did you pay? What did you give up? Now, you're probably asking, okay, when we get into Philippians, what does it have to do with Philippians? Let, let me show you. Because when you're an important person in your community, and you've got status, and you've got authority, when it looks like things are on the up and up for your career aspirations, when it feels like you are moving in some pretty good areas, and the next thing you know, you've lost all of that, your credibility, your authority, your place in community, and you find yourself sitting in a prison cell in Rome, and people who are supposed to be on your side are actually going around and undermining you behind your back while you're incarcerated, you might wonder, do you ever miss it, Paul, like that old life? the respect that you had, the place of authority, you were highly regarded, you lived a pretty comfortable life, things were going well for you, and now you might not even get out, like you might die over this. And as I read through your you know, life resume and description, how many floggings, beatings, and shipwrecks can one guy experience? I mean, come on. And so when you look back, isn't there for a moment an inkling of thought that maybe your life would have been better if you just hadn't accepted Jesus? I mean, don't you have a fleeting moment of thought that just says, I'm not sure this is worth it. You ever have just even a fleeting fantasy of what your life would be like if you would have never encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and obeyed His voice? And this isn't just some abstract existential question. The Philippians are living in the midst of this struggle. Now, it might be easy to become a Christian in America without too many people blinking an eye, but you didn't become a Christian in the heavily Roman militarized city of Philippi without it being a big deal. The ethics of Jesus didn't square too easily with the militarized environment in Philippi. And so you'll remember, right, in the first week we talked about um, it was Caesar who populated Philippi with people who were retiring from the military. And the reason why he did that is because he wanted a colony within the city of Philippi who were very loyal to Rome and to the emperor specific. And being a colony of Rome, especially established to be loyal to Rome and Caesar, if you declare that Jesus is Lord, and the word there is kurios, this was the most dangerous confession. It wasn't a cute bumper sticker cliche or a license plate frame to put on your car. It was a statement of direct defiance to the emperor because only he was kurios. It put the small struggling house churches in Philippi on a collision course with Rome. It was an undermining confession that denied to the state, you do not have authority here. Jesus and the kingdom of God has authority here. And that could get you disowned in your own family. That might even cost you your marriage. That might mean that you were labeled in the city and no one would buy from you or do business from you because of your unpatriotic behavior and your undermining of civil religion and stability. It might mean that you were mocked publicly. It might cost you financially. It could even mean like, abuse, like literal hate crimes, and possibly death. And now, on top of that, our leader is in prison. 
and we're hearing bad things about him from other preachers and teachers, and they're saying that Paul was wrong, we shouldn't listen to him. So all around you is confusion and danger and threats and conflict. Maybe, just maybe, it was a temptation to them to think back on their old life and what they gave up and what it cost them, and at least for a moment, think, I don't know if that was worth it. To have a moment where they fantasize about what their lives might be like if they hadn't confessed Jesus as Lord, and when they considered that fantasy to wonder if maybe life seemed easier. And to that, Paul speaks. Now I'm in Philippians 3, verse 1. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he's used this phrase over and over again. He's in chapter 1. He even said in chapter 1, I'm going to say it again. You should rejoice. Chapter 2, he brings it back up again, rejoice. He kicks off chapter 3 here with the same language. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's safeguard for you. And so he's encouraging a church here who probably is a little discouraged, maybe a little depressed, to rejoice. This is his continual theme. I rejoice. You should rejoice. Everyone, let's rejoice. And so, like, he would want the church. You should put on, I don't know, Pharrell Williams' happy song. You ever heard this song right here? Come on, everybody. Now, um, the truth is, Paul hated this song. Like, he didn't like it. Nobody should like this song. What Paul really wanted in the churches to be played is Bobby McFerrin. And so, right, this is, this is what really was going to, right? Which, as a side note, uh, you know Bobby McFerrin won't ever sing this song in any of his concerts? He hates it because it's all he's known for. Have you ever seen videos of Bobby McFerrin? Immense talent. Like, just like all he's known for is this song, but he has vocal abilities. Just, okay, that's another thing. Anyhow, moving on. And this is a real discipline for us. When Paul tells the church to rejoice in the Lord, he is not describing a passive feeling or emotion that is to come over them. It's an active posture. You need to take joy in. It's an active thing. You need to rejoice. I don't care if you don't feel like it at the moment. Rejoice. And listen, we find ourselves here far more than we realize. I don't feel like rejoicing. Like I even got dressed and came to church, but we fought in the minivan all the way here, and I walked in, I got my cup of coffee, and we're about to start worship, and I still don't feel like rejoicing. Like, no, I totally get it. Like, that just happens. Paul here is not waiting for you to have some passive experience of feel like rejoicing. He's saying you might have to actively choose to rejoice in the Lord. You might have to get your groove thing on and find joy in the Lord even if you don't feel like it because what Paul knows is what we all know in other areas of our life that sometimes we do things that if we were honest, we don't feel like doing it, right? I just don't feel like doing that. But more often than not, when we actually enter into those spaces and do the very things that we don't feel like doing, when it's all done, what do we normally say? I'm glad I did that. Same thing with rejoicing. I know you don't feel like rejoicing right now, but you need to take an active posture of getting your groove thing on and rejoice. The Christian life is supposed to reflect that abundant life. It's exactly what Nathan was just talking about, and he didn't even have my sermon notes. So when he said it, I was like, that's right, that's brilliant. Like, Jesus has given us abundant life. And out of that, there should be this countenance and expression where we rejoice. Now, listen, I, I'm not saying that there aren't moments that we live in where, no, it's lament. And there aren't moments when we just grieve. That's all. There, like, there's no other rejoicing. Like, we just grieve. And our prayers are heavy, and we lift them up to God with severity. But we don't want to live in that forever. And Paul reminds the anxious and beaten church, get your group thing on and start to rejoice. And then Paul reminds the Christians in Philippi, don't be so anxious. Don't be so worried. Don't be afraid. And listen, man, I'll tell you what, it's been a rough week for me as a pastor. Because I feel like Christians are leading the way in fear. Or leading the way in offense. And I just say, that's not the spirit he's given us, right? 
2 Timothy, Paul tells us, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but rather one of power and love and self-discipline. Quit worrying and get your praise on. Jesus is on the throne. And for Paul, he's like, even if I, even I'm, I'm in prison and even if I die here, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to be raised from the dead. He's got such great confidence that, listen, this is where my future is heading, and so let's start praising. And Paul, in verse 1, will repeat himself. Like he'll say, listen, it's no problem for me to say this again, meaning I've said this over and over and over again, and sometimes it works like that, doesn't it? Sometimes somebody says something to us that might be profound or life-changing, but we don't get it when we first hear it. What happens is like you hear it again and then again, and like the fourth or fifth time you hear it, you go, oh, and like the wires come together. And they like, oh, that's what this means. Like, that's what Paul's doing here. You've got a whole lifetime of being immersed in Roman culture and thoughts. These are new thoughts in Jesus. So it's no trouble for me to repeat once again what your new life in Christ looks like. And he says it's a safeguard for you. And so some of you might have stories of that, like, like you might have been guided your whole life by things you didn't realize. But you go, you, when you boil it down, you go, yeah, my dad used to say all the time. And then you kind of repeat a saying that your dad had. You've kind of used it as just kind of a guide in your own life. Or maybe for you, it's like, it's like my grandpa used to always say, and you recognize, oh, yeah, my whole life I've kind of lived this way, in part because grandpa said this all the time. So Paul's repeating it over and over again. And here's what we'll go on and say, verse 2. <laughs> We've got an abrupt transition here. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Okay, right? Like, let's, let's be happy, rejoice, like... Be careful for dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Like, er, record scratch, shift. We've got to shift the topic. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who, who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Listen, if, any, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Like that's what Paul's, you know, he's, he's, he's got his own trumpet. He's blaring for himself. And we're finally here getting a clearer picture of some of those other preachers who are running around and causing trouble for Paul. They're called what we know as the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were Christians, meaning, no, no, they accepted Jesus as their Savior, but they also taught you had to go through the law to become a Christian. So it's two, two movements if you're a Judaizer. Receive Jesus as your Savior and also follow the law. That's how you become a people of God. And so for them, you were born a Gentile? Well, that's unfortunate. But good news, even you Gentiles can be accepted by God. All you have to do is accept Jesus as the Messiah and keep the law of Moses. That's it. And then you can be a follower of Jesus. What this means is no more bacon. Right? So that would come to mind, right? If, like if I said, what did you pay to be a Christian? Like bacon would be on the top of your list if you gave that up. Like I ain't bacon in 20 years. <laughs> Take that, Jesus. Like that's what would come to your mind. No more shrimp. And I'm talking like the good coconut ones with that little sauce you get at Outback. It's all gone, right, in Jesus? Those of you sitting here with those cotton polyester blends, you can kiss that goodbye. No more working on the Sabbath. Oh, and one more thing. Uh, you guys who have not yet been circumcised, you have to get circumcised. <laughs> I think that was the low point of the, of the new members class that they had. It's like, bacon, all right, shrimp, all right, 
cotton fabric polyester blends. All right. Boy, you want me to take a knife and cut what? <laughs> you love Jesus or not? <laughs> and so Paul comes in with very strong language. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. That comes from the circumcision. You see how he does that? He makes a name for them like the mutilators of the flesh. And Paul makes the case that they actually think that they're saved because they're following the law. They think their observance of the law has earned for them salvation. It's legalism gone wrong. It's a form of self-righteousness that is putting confidence in what they, they did rather than what Jesus did. And the same thing can happen today. It might not be bacon, shrimp, and circumcision. It could be, well, I got baptized. I got a certificate. Look at this. Oh, right? Or maybe it's how many times you go to church or how often you serve. Or it might even be your devotional life. Well, I wake up and I pray every day, 30 minutes. I even do a version daily Bible reading, and I'm going through the whole Bible all year. Right? You're, you're patting yourself on the back, putting your confidence in those things. What Paul reminds them is the only thing we put our confidence in is Jesus, and that's it. The real circumcised, I mean like in spirit and heart, are those who boast in Jesus, who don't put any their confidence in themselves at all. And Paul, though, he says, but listen, if they want to go toe-to-toe at this game and head-to-head to this game, I can play this because there ain't nobody who can outdo me. Like, I am a Jew of Jews. He gives his whole list of this is exactly what my life background is. If anyone kept the law, it was me. But there's a but coming, and it's here, verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection, but also participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him even in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So remember, um, the question is, Paul, Do you ever look back at your old life and just wonder what things would be like if you'd never became a Christian? Like, do you ever just think to yourself, man, I miss my old life? Do you you sometimes wish that you wouldn't have paid such a heavy price for being a Christian? Paul, whatever I, this one, for Paul, whatever I had, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What Paul is saying is it's the great exchange. I found a pearl of great price, and I was willing to sell everything to acquire it, and I don't regret it for a moment. I would do it all over again compared to what I now have received. And listen, in verse 8 here, chapter 3, it's the closest you're ever going to get to a cuss word in the Bible. It's in Philippians chapter 3. It's in verse 8. Let me share with you a cuss word in the Bible, kind of. And Paul uses it here. It's the only time it's used in the entire Bible. It's the strongest of terms. It's slang in the Greek to underscore the life he now has in Christ compared to his old life. Now, your translations in verse 8 says garbage. Most of yours will say, you know, when I think back, it's like garbage. But that's not really the word. The Greek word is skubalon. And what it literally means is human excrement. And so it's not a four-letter word, but it is still the S word in Greek. Paul is literally saying, when I think about my old life, it's crap. That's what Paul is saying. I have literally, now all kids are going to go home, crap, crap, crap. The preacher said it. The preacher said it. 
What he's saying is, I have literally lost everything for the sake of Christ. And you know what? Now that I know Christ, what I lost, it was really just crap to begin with. I was playing in a trash heap, and Jesus wanted to give me paradise. I'm not going back to that. I was in a bouncy house when I had Disney World tickets at hand. And so he'll say, so listen, I don't care if I even, even though I'm in prison, I want to know Christ. And I mean all of it. The power of his resurrection, participation with him in his sufferings, dying like him, being raised from the dead just like him. What he says is, give me Jesus. I, I want Jesus more than I want my own breath. This is the intensity of Paul's language. And could you imagine feeling this way? Like, could you imagine if this were our prayer? Like, I, I want Jesus more than I want my next breath. And in light of such a strong desire to know Jesus, what's a little persecution? A little jail time? What's a little mocking or abuse or even being ostracized? We have Jesus. We know Jesus. So we move on to verse 12 and say this. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And I think this is important that Paul recognizes, listen, I'm not there yet, so don't think like I've arrived and come be like, I want you to know I'm on my way to it. Like I, I'm still pressing forward with this goal of knowing Christ in the, with this intensity. And he encourages them, now follow me as I pursue that. And then he'll wrap up here, verse 15, he says, All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if there are some points in which you do think differently, don't worry, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So let's join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, as, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, now I'll tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, this is verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so they may be like His glorious body. Now, I want to close with this phrase here, our citizenship is in heaven. We'll wrap up with this because when we hear this phrase, our citizenship is in heaven, most of us immediately think about like when we die up in the skies in some heavenly ethereal place, like the picture of it, kind of, that's kind of what we think of, like disembodied spirits floating around like Casper the Friendly Ghost, but we're in bliss because we're with Jesus. It's heaven. So, you know, we kind of, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere, right? You know, don't smell that song? Just me? All right, so, okay, thank you. We think of like heaven as this otherworldly place. But that couldn't be further from the truth in regards to what Paul actually means when he uses this phrase to the Christians in the city of Philippi. A phrase that would have very complete, uh, they would have, would have completely understood its meaning when he says it. Now, remember again, back in the first week, who largely, or at least has a strong contingent of people who occupy the city of Philippi? Roman citizens who fought in the military and decided to move here when they retired. And so within the city of Philippi, you have a colony of Roman citizens loyal to Rome and loyal to the emperor. And the reason was important. Listen, not everyone who lived in the Roman Empire was a citizen of the Roman Empire. A citizen 
was a highly valued status. And the citizenship of being a Roman was exactly that, being a Roman wherever you went. Thus, to have a Roman citizenship meant that you, your citizenship was in Rome whether or not you were in Gaul or Galatia or Pompeii or the city of Philippi. The various colonies of Rome were then seen as outposts of Rome spread throughout the empire, bringing Romanness to the territory. So those who were Roman citizens who were transplanted to the city of Philippi were to live out their Romanness and to spread that in the city of Philippi. They were citizens of Rome. And what Paul is saying is, you're not that. You are citizens of heaven. Paul, who ironically is a Roman citizen, was reminding the Philippian Christians that your city has been filled and colonized but citizens of Rome to spread Romanists throughout your city, but you are going to be citizens of heaven. Not in some distant time when you die, but right now. Your task right now is to be a colony on earth in Philippi that spreads heavenness here on earth. Thus, Paul is effectively saying that this earth in Philippi is now a colony of heaven. You exist to ensure that what God wants to happen happens here on earth. So when you hear the phrase, your citizenship is in heaven, don't immediately go, oh yeah, when we die, we get to go to heaven. What Paul means by that is, listen, you are going to represent heaven here on earth. That when you wake up wherever you find yourself, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your school, you are going to represent a colony of heaven here on earth and ensure in the space that is affected by your life, it will look like what God wants to happen and, and is going to happen because of the expansion of the kingdom of God. That's where your citizenship, Paul will use another language, you are like ambassadors of that kingdom. You are citizens of the kingdom of God, and your presence then will spread the values and worldview and perspective of that kingdom because all other kingdoms are passing away. But you belong and are citizen of the only one that lasts not only now, but forever. So let me close by asking, what did you give up to be a citizen of the kingdom? What did it cost you? What price did you pay? And now when you think back, do you, like Paul, consider what you have gained in Christ to be of so much value that it makes that old life you used to live look like crap. Because sometimes I hear Christians tell their story, and they talk about like their old selves, like, you know, I used to party all the time, and I got drunk, and I'd take drugs, and I got with this girl or this guy. And it almost has this tone, like they're bragging about it. Like, that's not what Paul does. Like, he never looks back on that and brags about it. He just recognizes, this is my story. I used to be this, but now I found Jesus. And now that you have made that great exchange and live as citizens of heaven or the kingdom of God, What are you doing to spread that kingdom? When you wake up in the morning, how will you represent that kingdom at school or at work or in your home or in your neighborhood? And as you do, don't forget to rejoice. Don't forget to rejoice. We've got great treasure and a pearl that's worth more than anything else. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge to the extent that we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, There was no way you looked down from heaven upon us and thought, boy, those people are impressive. So in that, we recognize what you've given to us is a gift, but we also recognize that it wasn't necessarily free of charge. In fact, uh, you bankrupt heaven itself by setting the prince of heaven to die on a cross. And the invitation that's now extended to us in receiving it is a great exchange. And so we don't want to have bouncy houses in our hands, and we don't want to have things that we could describe as garbage in our hands or even crap. What we want is to receive the fullness of what you have to offer us and in it that it causes us to rejoice 
and live new life. And so by the power of your Spirit, would you help us be ambassadors of your kingdom, spreading heaven here on earth wherever we find ourselves. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.